Welcome to the Shapes of Identity podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, as well as Justin Schleider. And today we have some wonderful guests. We have Dr. Blackshear and Dr. Culp, as well as another guest from just across the river in New Jersey, Marcella. Well, I guess I forgot. Justin's also from Jersey. But today we have a great one for you. We're going to be covering the book Critical Race Studies in Physical Education, which was a uh, co-authored by our two guests and let's swing it over to Justin so we can get rolling. All right, let's do quick intros. Justin here, I teach health, just health right now, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade in Central Jersey. Marcella, tell us about yourself, please. Um, Marcella Simaderas, I'm a white woman. I have three children, two identify as black, one identifies as mixed. Um, I teach physical education um, in elementary K to eights in Patterson uh, since September 2000, and um, I'm a follower of Christ. All right, thank you. Appreciate that. Let's go, Dr. Culp. Up next, tell us about yourself, please. Yeah, I am. Uh, wow, I'm a full professor and department chair at Kennesaw State University, which is about 30 minutes north of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, originally. I've spent some time in Savannah, Georgia, Indianapolis, Indiana, Montreal, Canada. Um, got my doctorate at University of Georgia, my undergrad at University of Georgia, master's at Georgia State University. I am a licensed physical education teacher. I've had experience in the classroom for some of you who listen to the podcast are just like, who is this guy? So yeah, I, I actually do teach in schools um, from time to time as well. So that's pretty much the big stuff about me. Fantastic. And we saved the best for last. Dr. Tara Blackshear. Hello, doctor. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you for having us on the show today. Um, as you said, I'm Tara Blackshear. I'm an assistant professor, soon to be associate professor in the fall, recently earning tenure and promotion at Towson University. Um, I have 17 years of K-12 teaching experience, most in secondary schools, 10 years in the United States, three years in Egypt, and four years in Thailand. So as Brian said, I am a health and physical educator. I'm certified in the state of Maryland, currently certified in the state of Maryland and New Jersey. And we bring a lot to the table, and I'm, I hope your audience recognizes what, what um, the courage that we've taken to produce um, critical race studies and physical education. So thank you again for having us. Oh, we are super excited. So first, a little background. Marcella, I get an email from her and the New Jersey DOE representative, Lenny. She tags us both in the email with a picture of your book. Like, yo, when are y'all reading this? Which is fantastic. Uh, I like it. And shout out to Human Kinetics. Somehow I add, I got added onto their like testing list. So when the books come out, they'll send me the books. If I request, I was like, can I have this one, please? And send it as quickly as possible. Um, I love the book. It is amazing. Uh, and we'll get into the book a little more. One of the reasons I love the book is because it's literally for professional development, professional learning. Like there's scenarios in the book of, hey, here's what's going on. And then discussion questions at the end. That only happens after y'all set us up with some background knowledge of what's going on. So let's start at the very beginning. 
we look at the cover, and I y'all were very intentional with this cover. So I see what looks like a little black boy around, I don't know, three, four, laying upside down. And then it looks like a little black girl, not positive, uh, around the same age, both with just these angelic eyes and nice smiles. Why did you choose that cover? Well, it's interesting you say that because we think that they're two girls, but we're, we're okay if folks think one's a boy, one's a girl or what have you. Um, we, Brian and I have a lot of jokes around this cover and we've looked through hundreds and hundreds of images um, to find the right one. And throughout all of the images in the book, we realized that there is not a lot of positive images of black youth, um, especially engaged in physical activity. And the ones that do exist either, they're either stereotypic or they're just, they're just poorly, poorly, poor images, like the, the quality. Um, and then they're always included with other students, like just black, Black people was very, Black youth, very rare. So we wanted to show the innocence and happiness of where Black children start, like all children. They're happy, they're healthy, they're engaged in physical activities and pure joy, which is not expressed for Black students in K-12 schools. And so this one, um, it reminds us of the parachute um, that is often used in elementary PE classes. And just, we, we hope that where these children start, this happiness, this joy, this love for physical activity can continue throughout their academic tenure in K-12 schools. Brian, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I'll add a few things because my co-author always will leave a few things out that uh, I think are very important. And I think, you know, first of all, as she mentioned, putting black youth, putting black children on a cover book, that's something that has been relatively recent, that historically that's not done um, in large part because books, um, publishers historically didn't believe that they could sell books with like black figures on the cover. So we thought that that was very important to do. Um, as we know, black girls, well, first of all, girls overall have lower rates of physical activity. When you look at black girls and really break it down further, they have even lower rates of physical activity and a host of reasons are for that. Um, we look at how black girls' bodies are constructed versus Western norms. We also look at how black girls and women are um, sexualized in media and they're not looked at in terms of moving, right? When we also have some hitting messages about black girls. Um, one of them that we thought about was just the rates of missing black girls and women that we have right now in society. And we say recent, but this has been a trend that's been going on for about 35 years. Um, wanted to make sure that that was a hidden message that was, was sort of um, shown as well. Um, so we want to make sure that people know that, hey, there are black girls in physical education, in schools that are gonna be involved in physical activity and their perspectives need to be included. And last but not least, and again, this is a great question to sort of start with I me. Mean, I think you know, one of the things that's sort of missing in looking at the book at a glance is how many black women are actually collaborators in this book. 
And I thought that that was going to be a very, I think it was very important to make sure that that representation was, was put front and center. Because even in Pete, we tend to be, when we talk about Black authors, we tend to be overrepresented by men. And because this book has so many different collaborators that are women, um, we definitely wanted to make sure that that cover sort of reflected that. So that's part of that hidden curriculum piece. Well, give a shout out real quick to the collaborators so we can, we can hear their names and we can start to recognize when we see them. Sure. I don't know if I was muted or not. Um, we have Dr. Tiffany Monique Quash. She contributed um, two chapters, gender, race, sexuality, um, both, con both areas. Um, we have Dr. Angela Bill Tafik and Yvette Onifer. We also have my children, they contributed. Um, Afi and Akinyemi Blackshear. <laughs> and we have Dr. Cara Grant, and she contributed. Um, she closed, she made a nice rounding of all of the case studies with pre-service teachers considering um, working at predominantly Black schools. Nice. Yeah, so right from the cover, you, you set the tone, and then you go to the preface and I feel like I got like one page in and I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is where we're going. So you talk about these four core understandings and I feel like they were very in your face. And if you didn't understand these core principles and you don't agree with them, it's going to impact your teaching. So let's talk about the first one. You talk about the fact that we live in an anti-Black society that views Black bodies as expendable commodities. So can we discuss this? What, where, where did the idea come from? I mean, we could start with the 1619 Project. I mean, we can go wherever, but talk to me about this. Well, I will jump right in on that one. Um, when we got these questions uh, yesterday, I had kind of already had some things I've been thinking about. Um, because this is a question that um, I'm fairly confident most people are going to ask. So I'll, I'll cover a few general pieces and then we'll sort of fill some things in. So first piece, when you think about core understandings, we wanted to make sure that people didn't just start with reading case studies in the book because it wouldn't link. If you start reading case studies in this book and you don't read the introduction, you're going to be absolutely lost. And it is going to be, for some people, rather inflammatory. So the first part of it was to sort of set up history, okay? History, when we think about like slavery in the United, in the United States, okay? Situations where black people, first of all, were used as property. I mean, there's no way around that. I mean, black people were used as property in the United States in order to advance a lot of things through white settler um, colonialism. Um, when we look at black youth, for instance, there are documented instances where black babies and children were used, and this is gonna sound really um, grotesque, but again, document it as alligator bait for hunting. These are things that were documented in Florida. Um, Tuskegee experiments, for instance, um, the three-fifths rule that we have our quote-unquote democracy that is built from when we think about voting rights. When you think about the one-drop rule, when we think about the destruction of black cities after reconstruction, um, even though we had obviously the Emancipation Proclamation that um, we're supposed to provide some safety in that particular respect. 
Um, when we look at now after the 21st century, things such as environmental racism, um, we look at where we're, many of us will be at in New Orleans with our SHAPE conference. And I think it's been very interesting how folks have just forgotten about what has happened in New Orleans over the past 20 years, and particularly as um, we've had several hurricanes that have come through and displaced Black populations, and those populations have been replaced and, and gentrified, for lack of a better word. When you think about Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis, when you think about domestic and foreign policy in the United States, um, even when you think about media, and the running joke that most of us know about when black people get killed in horror movies, like who usually goes first? Historically, it's been like, when you see a black person in a horror movie, you go, well, he or she ain't gonna make it too long, right? So that's, that's a little bit of anti-blackness as well. And a few other things. I mean, you, you think about just the, the fact that in media, we loop black death. Um, you go on social media, you can still see pictures of black people getting shot. And those things create a lot of hits for uh, media. Um, and then when you think about it from an economic standpoint, um, you, you've had people who've done studies when you think about Black people having smaller life insurance payouts, you've had deflated wage rates, um, marked down housing values, um, what we spend on public education in cities that are considered Black. Um, you know, economics, a lot of economists that look at that um, have had statistics that have shown that black lives are worth less than a third of white lives. And then some of the things that we're dealing with right now that usually come up, policing and how that happens. Um, CRT, which is partly some of the reason when we're trying to take history out of schools, the reason why people don't know about these things and how anti-black society can be framed. And then, and I wrote this in here and, and don't get offended by it, but the fact that I always have to answer this question is sort of a proof about the fact that black people are always trying to provide proof, even though we see these things happen in a significant manner on an everyday basis. And again, that doesn't have anything to do with you ask, asking the question. It's just the fact that black people are always expected to provide some type of proof and we are always uh, pro, um, having to um, provide proof in a situation where society hasn't really, um, well, it hasn't really like came up to, to snuff, for lack of a better word, with their contracts. They break contracts. So I think that's a good start. That may have been more than you wanted. No. So I'll, I'll pass the mic. I'm going to. I'm going to add to that, Brian, well done. You covered a lot there, but just looking at, you know, re recent data, if you just look at NFL and NBA statistics, um, we have zero black NFL majority owners um, with the league made up of 70% black athletes using, you know, their bodies as a commodity um, <clears throat> with only one black and one mixed race black um, head coach. NBA looks a little bit better. They have a lot of representation for Black head coaches, but they have only one Black um, owner. And so this plays out in every facet in American life. Um, even when you have data, NFL is still denying it. Um, they're still um, professing fair play and, and, and all hosts of other things. And it's not until you have Flores filing a lawsuit that now, now it's an issue. And so again, and it has to do with economics as Brian pointed out, once, you, once there's a threat 
of the economic um, line, then we have these, you know, performative gestures instead of real change. Yeah, and I feel like this question alone, hours can be spent on <laughs> so much information uh, out there. And yeah, the question definitely uh, is asked, right, and constantly answered. And we know, I mean, there, it's overwhelming evidence. You could not debate this. There's no two sides. It's very clear of what goes on. All right, so now that we've clearly understood there's a problem, there's a multitude of evidence uh, <laughs> out there for it that people cannot ignore, even if they want to. Uh, let's go, and I try to make these questions not centered strictly around whiteness uh, on purpose. However, you do talk about whiteness in one of your second principles. So if I'm teaching, where does whiteness show up if I'm not specifically trying to say that white people are better than everyone else, like I'm somewhat aware of race and trying not to just put white people at the forefront. How does that still show up, even with my good intentions and trying to make sure that I'm not just uh, highlighting white people all the time? It's almost like where doesn't it show up? Um, you start with the standards and Brian and I examine the Pete standards and then Jen Facet examined the K-12 standards and white people develop the standards. So with no black, brown, indigenous folks represented. And so when you have that, you have the standards and then you have white curriculum writers, you have predominantly white teachers. So everything even if you're a black teacher, you are delivering content created by white people that usually don't have black and brown students um, best interest at heart. So I think it's pretty much where, where doesn't it show up? And even with good intentions, if we're delivering curriculum and, and trying to meet standards that is one dimensional, um, whiteness is going to show up every every time you step into the gym. And so I think it's more of, you know, how are some ways that we can change um, the aspects of whiteness that heavily influence health and physical education spaces? So I think if, if you're not questioning who's developing content and for who, who does it serve, who does it impact, um, and what are the negative consequences for those who do not fit a certain um, mold, those are the questions I think that need to be answered before you can try to be the one person to um, change the dynamics that are going in your, on in your classroom. Brian? Yeah, I think obviously curriculum is one of the biggest pieces of that. And I think as part of curriculum, you have to think about what things that teachers are using, what things are they buying and what things are being published that continue to sort of perpetuate that idea that, for instance, the only thing that we can do in physical education is motor skills. Like historically in PE, every time there's a discussion about cultural responsive pedagogy or race, there tends to be a lash against where we need to focus on motor skills or fitness and you know as I've mentioned to a few people 
we have editions of physical education books written by enormously smart people that are in the 15 to 16 editions of books. So that means that they started in the early 80s and people are still writing these other editions of books about motor skills. So physical education, we're never gonna have an issue talking about motor skills and foundations of PE. What we have to sort of expand on is how we're gonna look at justice issues because other aspects of education have gotten a little bit better with this. I think other pieces such as um, teachers often don't think about what happens with students outside the physical education class. So in terms of recreational spaces. So how are we looking at physical education classes in one aspect where that teacher could be absolutely amazing and all those students are valued, but there are some students that will leave that class and they go to their recreational space and they're on a path trying to jog, for instance, and someone looks at their skin color and decides that they need to move over into that particular child's space. And the child doesn't really understand like why that's happening. And it's happening a lot of times because we have people who don't think that, and this is recreational studies that have proven this, that when we look at non-white participants in recreation, they're not looked at in the same way in terms of being able to have access to that space as well. Um, one of the things that I've heard in, in my years of observing student teachers is what you will hear sometimes from coordinators is them talking about athletic traits of non-white students. And that is like, well, she's going to be a great athlete. Or he's going to be a great athlete. And a couple times you kind of go, okay, that's cool. But when you consistently visit that particular teaching, uh, student teaching environment and that cooperating teacher is only talking about athletics, only talking about athletics. And this happens with black, in my experience, and with black and white cooperating teachers. That's sort of um, one of those things where we're sort of limiting what we think students can do as well. And then I think, you know, we've always talked about hyper-disciplining of students. Um, we have people who are talk about survival, like I survived this particular class. And it was like, well, what do you mean when you survived this particular typically urban class of all of these different students? I mean, are you needing to get a badge for that? Like, you know, so what does that mean? And some of this is the schools as well, because we do know that schools in urban areas um, tend to overpopulate physical educators with tons of students. And those students tend to be black and brown. And Brian, you just brought up <clears throat> something up. Something for me is the allocation of health and physical education. Um, in predominantly black schools versus predominantly white schools. And we have that going on here in Baltimore City, where within the city, there are elementary schools that have quality health um, education programming, quality physical education, more time allocated. And then you go within the same district to the predominantly black schools and health in the elementary schools are is almost um, non-existent. And so those are some other um, structures that are not being addressed. I mean, how can within one district there be different, um, a different delivery in, in content and programming? And so, and, and this is just not here, this is across the country, that there is um, still separate um, and unequal within the same school district. Stephen, anything to add? I mean, outside of just anecdotal evidence of exactly what they're talking about in Philadelphia, I mean, 
that's very prevalent in our spaces in regards to health, time and allocation of phys ed as well. Um, a lot of schools, it's just check off the box. How can we get as many kids to get this as quickly as we can? And it's not about quality, it's about just getting that quantity mark. Um, I've been enjoying most of this because it's a lot of stuff that brings you back and starts to make you think like, do I showcase any of those? And obviously I think many of us do, whether it's intentional or unintentional, and that's just a reality of it. Um, and even just like the words like survive, I feel like that's a common word to use in Philadelphia. And it's just like part of that vernacular because of the situations and contexts that are created by people that are not in the teaching level. So you got like admin and people from like central office and how they create the situations for everybody and how they're not equitable. They're not for the benefit of kids, it's just about data. And I think that's another part that I find interesting. When we talk about the commodity, everything is data oriented. What's their reading score? What's their writing score? Like what's their math score? And that's all they focus on. Are they having enough iReady minutes? They're not actually there for the kids. It's kind of disturbing, but. And Steven and, and everyone else, think about your first year teaching, how happy you were, how, you know, you were going to make all these changes. You were going to try to apply um, the theoretical content that you learned in undergraduate. And um, the system unfortunately beats you down. Um, and, and you've seen teachers change dramatically over time um, from that vibrant. Um, and this is what we're doing, this is what K-12 schools are doing to children. So if you, if if the teacher's surviving, <laughs> Right. If they're surviving, you can only imagine what the child is surviving um, across the dimensions in their particular schools. Marcel, any thoughts? Yes. Um, with regards to what um, Dr. Blackshear just said, um, that is what happened to me. And I have presently horrors of, of just my own pedagogy as a result of the system, right? And even how I even um, responded to my Black son. You know what I'm saying? Like how I treated my Black son. And it wasn't like years went by <laughs> till I realized what was happening. And um, I'm grateful for my eyes being opening, opened now. But to your question, Justin, we could just look at the revisions of uh, the phys ed standards in New Jersey and how there were no, apparently no black people present except for the coordinator for the state of New Jersey, which I really, you know, no disrespect to either one of you. I just, you know, black people attached the institution, like you two are rare, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it, it black people attached the institution sometimes have, can't, can't be that voice sometimes because a lot, is on the line for them. So um, th th those revisions resulted in language that I use to infuse Amistad into my lessons and that, you know, uh, basically spoke to Black experiences. So I don't want to take up too much time. I just wanted to say that. And if you all noticed what I said about the pick on the DOE, um, 
Twitter page and you can go on there right now. There's one girl that might be mixed, but I'm, I'm looking for, you know, representation of black people. And that's clear, you know, and they're failing to do that when I called them out on it. And it's like, there's no, no, no repercussions. It's not important. It's not. So to your question, Justin. Thanks for sharing that, Marcella, because Brian and I clearly talked about the ambiguity in images of Black youth um, on the web. So that, that is factual. I mean, we were just, that's what took us so long. That's why it was just incredibly difficult. And the cost of this picture was significantly higher than all of the other images where either you weren't sure their race or there were other groups, other non-Black faces in the image, in the picture. So we had to pay a premium price, um, maybe because it's rare, I'm not sure why, but there were some significant differences across images and pricing. Wow, a lot there. Um, and I would say to get back to whiteness, like even white teachers simply walking in the room, that's where whiteness starts. Like the, the power is with us. So if you're white and you don't recognize that you have the power walking into the room, that is a, a dynamic we have to understand. And uh, like you said, it made me think when you were talking about the picture being more expensive, made me think about uh, the article that came out, how, how it's cheaper to adopt a black baby. That's wild. That's absolutely wild when we talk about, and you know, you talked, Dr. Cole talked about the housing before, how when you have black pictures on the wall and there was multiple lawsuits, like I've read like two or three in the span of a week of appraiser came in, black pictures on the wall, House got valued 200,000, 250,000 less than they went back, had a white person put their pictures on the wall, had another one come in. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to this. And it, it's hard to depersonalize from this, uh, which well, you know, I understand even the conversations that you all have to have is, is a gift because we are taking your energy. Um, it, it's tough. Well, my mom was a real estate agent back in the eighties in Detroit, Michigan. And she would always, if she had a black home seller, she would, and that was, you would tell them, take all, take anything down that signifies you are black. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, and we also see that with affiliation. And, you know, I want to make sure people are aware of that. You know, even when you are a white person who has white friends and you're a white ally, you are looked at as completely different if you are participating in things that society considers black. And we have seen that obviously over the course of the civil rights movement. And we're even seeing it now in terms of, for instance, people who have protested for black rights and they have lost their lives for it. So it's a, it's a multi-complex piece um, when we talk about race and whiteness and how it affects um, you know, us as people and then youth as well. Yeah, there is a cost of interrupting whiteness, you know, even if you are white in a group of white people, for sure. 
right, let's go to the next one. Uh, we talk about black students having empowering teaching practices. What would these look like? So I, I, I'm guessing most of our listeners are gonna be white uh, and they were gonna say that they got into teaching to help kids. That's why they did it, all kids, regardless of race. Uh, they want to be better. So I'm listening to this right now. I'm like, all right, so we talk, we know there's a problem. We know me being white automatically brings dynamics to the classroom. We know the standards are white, created by white people. My administration's probably gonna be white. My board of ed's probably gonna be white. My school, probably going to be majority white. How do I empower my students who are not white and specifically black? Because again, when we're able to help black students, all students are going to benefit. And I know that we've been focusing and the book focuses a lot on strictly black students and black teachers. When we are able to help the most marginalized group, all groups are going to be lifted up. And I, I know white people right now are listening go, well, they're only talking about black. They're only talking about black. But literally by helping the, the group that is harmed the most, every other group is going to be benefited. So let's talk to me. What are some empowering strategies where I can interrupt my own whiteness in teaching and we can make our black and brown students feel uh, seen and welcome? Thank you, Justin. I'm actually going to change the question a little bit. Um, why do teachers need to engage in practices that teaching practices that empower black youth to aid in their success? So I'm just going to change that a little bit because how it's worded sounds like black students need to be doing the empowering. Um, and hopefully that's not how we wrote it in the book. Maybe we missed that. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just a poor question writer. But anyway. Okay. <laughs> I know when you were, you know, time was not on your side. <clears throat> so I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. And the, the answer, the short answer for why is, so Black children can live healthy, safe, um, productive, and active lives. I mean, that's the short answer. If I want to know what are they, so we un I understand the why. Not I went off. I didn't even read the question specifically because we know the why. You're a hundred percent right on that because there's a group being harmed. I mean that it's a very simple answer. So I want to know now, like what are the next steps? So let's play tennis with this, Doctor Blackshear. So <laughs> you you just hit one over the net, and I've got because you were talking about health, and I'll start this conversation and then pitch it back over to you by saying when we look at for the mental health crisis among black youth right now and the amount and the increase in suicide between the ages of 12 and 18 over the past five years, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable, horrible. So in thinking about that, and that's just one example when we talk about mental health and supports and empowerment, some of the things that teachers can do is think about how representation happens in that classroom. We've already talked about curriculum. We've talked about, are we giving opportunities for black youth to be leaders in that class? Okay, and to be actually helping to create that classroom experience instead of just being passive participants, right? When we are they giving examples, when you walk into that classroom, what are you seeing? When you, if your motivational quotes, and let's be clear here, I'm a big fan of John Wooden, but John Wooden's problematic, not because of the quotes, but because none of your students know who John Wooden is. 
So are we looking at like, who are some current people that we can use quotes from to help motivate students? Who are they physically seeing in a classroom? Are they just seeing all athletes? Are they seeing people from different parts of black culture maybe participating in different sorts of activities? And I'll just give you an aside to that. If you ever want to see something that is ridiculously fascinating, do a search for civil rights leaders in recreation. And you will see pictures of civil rights leaders in color pictures. There's one famous one of MLK riding a bike outside of Boston that many people have never seen because we always think about civil rights leaders in like black and white. And if they're just so distant and taking that, that example, looking at ways where we can see people who are quote unquote in black culture, who are everyday people, maybe somebody's mom, maybe somebody's dad, looking like they're involved in physical activity. So how are they helping to sort of construct that space? And I'll hit my lob over to Dr. Blackshear because I know she has a few things as well. Yeah, and I think what, what I think one of the critical elements is, you know, we use all of this educational jargon, student-centered, student-centered. Well, student-centered is actually asking your students and their parents, what do they need and want in health and physical education spaces? That conversation or those conversations are not occurring asking your students, what do you need? What do you want? And really getting beyond just the surface activities. How many, how, how often do you want PE? Why are you um, disengaged in PE? Like you really need to ask students questions. How can we make this a more inclusive, holistic environment? Are there things that I'm doing that prevent your participation? And you have to really start asking because students, in particular Black students, when you see them engaging in off-task behaviors, sometimes they know something is going on, but they can't articulate what's going on. Sometimes they can't quite put their finger on that this teacher is, is engaging in racist behaviors. They might say they're mean, I don't like them and so forth, but the onus is on the teacher to check in frequently with students. How am I doing? How is it going? How do you feel? Students are left out of the equation in health and physical education, um, decision-making, content, it's, it, it, it's really, it's ridiculous that we are not including students in the conversation and their parents. Um, I see the comment in the chat, black parents are left out on purpose. And those conversations need to be had if we are really trying to empower students because we're giving them what we think we need or what, they, what we think they need instead of what they actually need. And so I think that those conversations need to start um, occurring, even if it's you, only you in your teaching space. And I would add one other thing as well. And all of those things are excellent points. I think one thing with teachers we have to recognize is that all of us are in different communities. And I always ask teachers, number one, do you know the history of the community that you live in? Do you know the history of your school? Because if you know that, that'll give you some ideas about how you can attack things. 
I think sometimes when we think about training, we, we feel like we have to just have an overview of everything that's happened in the United States and everything that's happened globally. And of course, yeah, you know, you're going to get frustrated as a teacher in addition to the 8 million things you have to do in a school, in addition to your preparation, in addition to, oh, by the way, navigating things that happen in your life. But I think oftentimes teachers don't just look at the communities that they're in and the history of the communities that they're currently in, because it can tell you a whole lot about why students, parents, policies, procedures, legislation is the way it is and why it is often sometimes very charged. Marcella, you got something? You look like you're writing furiously over there. Because I can't get a pen to work. <laughs> thanks. Um, I just want things. I just want to um, say um, New Jersey has a huge history with um, um, recreation and Black people. You got the Shady Rest uh, Country Club. That was the first Black um, country club in the whole, the whole um, country nation. You have John Shipman, who was the first um, pro-American, not even Black, just the first pro-golfer in this country. To, um, to, and he was only 16. He was only 16. And he, he, he the, uh, out of the first round, he, he was in second. And then he, um, he had a bad uh, hit. I don't know. I'm not big on golf, but whatever you call it. <laughs> Strike. I don't know. Sorry. And I haven't, I've been out of the classroom for four years. But anyway, um, he um, and there was so much that was put into saying he wasn't black. They were saying he was Native American. So that just demonstrates that there is a hierarchy hierarchy of oppression. You know what I'm saying? So anybody but a black man. So there's a, a on purpose effort all the time to um, shape narratives about what's going on. And there's a narrative that black parents don't show up. But where I live in my community, not where I work, but where I live in Montclair, we have a organization of black parents, the National, um, Independent, National Independent Black Parent Association, Montclair chapter, that I, whenever, whatever space I am, education space, I, I let everybody know they lead the state in equity work. Um, they they um, created the first anti-racist policy, they created two, um, serious positions, uh, assistant superintendent over equity, uh, student equity advocate that was specifically for, brought in four black students and white progressives in this community work to um, knock all of that work down. And um, I don't wanna get all into it, but uh, to your question, Justin, some things and and these and these things that I knew to do, I learned from um, uh, uh, my dear friend who's committed to her people. Um, but like I had a black liberation flag in my gymnasium. That's one thing I put up. Um, and I know some people were trying to say because I my service Latino students and black students. So there was some, some questions about why didn't I have any Latino um, flags up? But I'm, we're, we're talking about equity. We're talking about those in the most need. And that's why I'm so appreciative of this book because it is unapologetic about talking about black youth. And like you said earlier, Justin, 
when we cover the most vulnerable, everybody's covered. And, you know, you have to be, and you have to be intentional about learning, just like um, Mr. Cope, Dr. Cope had said before, you have to learn about your communities. You have to learn about how to be, what you can do to, to help. You have to be intentional about it. Mm. Yeah, in my health class, one of the things I'm really trying to do is humanize all my students, but specifically my black students. So first we got, I feel like we have to know history because if you don't know history, you can't confront certain things. Uh, second, we have to know uh, where to shine the positive light. Like when any kid tells me they're Haitian, I jump up. I'm like, yo, do you realize that without Haiti, we wouldn't even have the United States. And I connect that whole thing to Haiti's war against the bullying and how the Louisiana purchase occurred because they were going broke, like literally going and saying like, do you realize y'all um, how they protested and how they fought against slavery were the first group. So again, when you can do that and shine the positive light, I think that really helps. Um, I do the rice project where every culture eats rice differently and really have them go online, take pictures and put them into Seesaw. And then we share out in the class so we could look at it and go, hey, I have jerk chicken and rice. Hey, I have this, I have that. And all the cultures are going to be represented. But specifically, when we do that, our Black cultures can be shown and other people get that spotlight, get that window into other cultures that they may not see. And then the last thing, and I, I've said this a million times, Stephen going to roll his eyes. When you have power over a group, you should be surveying that group to find out how you're doing. I say it over and over again. I do that every trimester in the middle of it. I don't know why admin doesn't survey teachers about what they're doing, how they're doing, why teachers aren't surveying students about what they're doing, why the school isn't sending out surveys to parents about how they're doing. Whoever you have power over, if you're really trying to be servant leadership, you need data, you need to find out. It can't be a gut can't get the feedback of the three people who like you and the one person that hates you, whatever it is, you got to find out from everyone. So I'm always about survey your kids. And then the last one, I love that about student center, bring in, and I always ask them in the survey in the beginning, what do you want to learn? To my students, we are a non-tested subject. There is no one who's coming in and saying, you didn't teach soccer or you didn't teach the digestive system. Not one person will come in and say that to you. You have the flexibility to move within your curriculum. And as long as you could attach it to your lessons and you know don't go too far out the box, we can do this. So it's a choice. And now that we're hearing this over and over again, let's make those choices. Steven, anything I missed? Nope, I was just going over the third principle and I think we covered everything unless anybody wants to expand upon Tomlinson. That'll be about it. And then I think we're moving on. Anyone want to talk about this Tomlinson that Mr. Buller brought up? All right, moving on. Uh, let's go to... Uh, where are we at? Ah, uh, the socially justed program. Did we talk about that? What are, what are we missing? We talked about uh, finding out people we have power over, right? That's always going to be part of the socially just. What other areas are we missing? If we're really talking about social justice in phys ed, we hear it all the time. We hear access to resources. Uh, talk to me over here, doctor. 
Well, I, I think, you know, you already touched on sort of the first part is like what we always discuss is like the pillars are always equity. They're always something related to human rights. It's always something related to access. There's always something related to sort of participation. So how does that look like? What do the pillars look like? And I'll go back to what I said before. I think part of this is teacher reflection. And a lot of times what happens when I'm working with my teachers, when I'm going out in the field, even some of the ones where workshops is to get them to think about situations where they felt that they have had some type of offense happen to them or some type of inequity happen and getting them to really contextualize that and then putting them in a situation to a group that is more marginalized than they are. I think that's a really big thing to sort of understand sort of pillars here and what do we, we sort of mean. So things in terms of pieces, like what type of equipment do we buy for people? Like, if, are you advocating in situations, for instance, with administration, where you're saying to them, hey, we need equipment for these particular groups of students to do these particular types of missions or this type of grant, okay? Access, um, when we think about field trips, because we don't really do a lot of those anymore in physical education. So are there situations where we can take students to a place where a park, recreation, or bring people in that are reflective of those students' cultures so that they can see a different voice about something and not just listen to us all the time? And then when we think about participation, are we linking our classes to events that are happening in the area so that we can cross promote things? And I'm going to stop there because I've got some other things I could probably add on, but I know Dr. Blackshear has a few of these things as we've sort of discussed here. Well, I mean, and it's all circling back to kind of what you pointed, on, pointed out earlier in the conversation is community, right? Not only have you explored or examined the community, but with that comes engagement and then with that comes access. Um, if you look at predominantly black communities, recreation centers are underfunded or they're closed. And so when your students come to class wanting to participate in certain activities or that dominate, um, appear to dominate what they want to engage in, for example, basketball, it's on the onus, I believe, on the teacher to find out do they have opportunities to play basketball elsewhere, right? And so if the answer is no, it makes sense that this is the request because the options may be limited outside of school. And so I think if you're looking for um, socially just oriented um, PE programs, you, you need to take an inventory of what is transpiring um, from access to recreation centers, safety, um, sidewalks, parks, you know, a, a battery of things and exposing the, the youth in the community who may not be aware. For example, Baltimore has some of the most beautiful parks and lakes. They have running, running trails, they have outdoor fitness equipment. <clears throat> we have um, <clears throat> Frisbee golf, we have a lot in the city, but I'm not sure that our students are being exposed to these opportunities. And so again, you need to see what's, what's actually transpiring. And not only in the community, but looking at the practice of driving into a community 
and really taking the resources, and I mean your salary based on teaching these students, and where are you, um, where, is, where is your income coming from? So you're coming into the city basically stealing resources because most teachers, white teachers, aren't living in black communities or in the communities where they teach. And so I think a lot of questioning of why are you there and what purpose do you serve? What, what is your intent? And if it's not positive intent, and if you don't believe that all children can learn and be successful, um, you know, a new profession may need to be on the horizon. And I, I think, you know, to get teachers, as Brian pointed out, to be reflective in what are their intentions and what do they hope students gain after the experience, experiences they have with them as a teacher. Yeah, I, I just think that point about economics is just one as we are all in tax season. And I just think, you know, the fact that many people do not recognize the fact that we have groups of people in this country who have consistently paid taxes for unequal resources. Still, I mean, Jim Crow, people were not not paying taxes, right? I mean, think about that. So we've had groups of people who've been paying taxes for segregated schools, um, no resources. And the administrators say, well, we don't have resources for this and that, but it's like we, we vote and we have money. So taking in the same, right? So those are just things that I, I think we have to push as well, when we talk about socially just, we have to also push legislators and representatives to that as well, and really talk to them because we advocate a lot for physical education, and we you know some of us go to Washington D.C. and things like that. But sometimes bringing those local people in to understand the dynamics of how money works in communities and how it, it disadvantages certain groups of people, I think that is a very important thing, and some of those things that we sometimes miss when we go to these school boards. Yeah, and, and that's one of those ones that uh, I look hard in the mirror. Because again, I live in a white community, like all white community. And I can, there's reasons why, and I can make a million excuses. But the bottom line is I live in an all white community and I travel into a community that's very diverse. And, and so I have to look at what are my motivations and then how am I benefiting and, and, and do that, those hard questions, which people don't want to do. It's, it's tough. Steven, Marcella, anything before we move on? Not um, really, but I was just going to say it's usually a common question and it does throw students off when they find out you don't live in the suburbs. So for me, when students find out that I live in the demographics are changing because gentrification is currently unavoidable in Philly, um, but Technically, I'm the minority of the neighborhood, but it's kind of changed over the last like five years. So they kind of find it more interesting that you live in a community that looks more like them and they can have a better understanding because then they don't throw you in the same group as the other teachers, which is another interesting discussion because the other teachers that don't necessarily live in a community that's as a diverse or they live out in the suburbs in comparison to Philly, like it's such a different experience. They don't even understand the basics of how students get to, to the school and then all the issues with public transportation and all these other reasons why students might not be consistently showing up to school on time. 
um, neighborhood dynamics where there might be issues between different uh, peer groups that turn into issues in the school and outside of school. So there's like a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily understand depending on where you're teaching if you're not living in the same community. So I found that interesting that students' thoughts of you change instantly when they find out you don't live where they think you live, if that situation fits you. Marcella? Um, just the importance with the economic piece and making sure that you're having that conversation on how we're, if we're, if we're not putting into spending money into the community that provides our livelihood, we're basically like vampires, just taking, taking, taking. Um, so, you know, being an intentional in promoting, um, spending your money in the community, showing, um, making the children aware of opportunities. Like there was an organization in Patterson that would have like this black expo the day after Thanksgiving, um, to make sure that you spent your money on, um, in black businesses and like sharing that type of information. That's, that's my take on that. Nice. Right, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit uh, because while your book is specifically centered on the black community, you also bring in sexuality and gender a lot. Right. So the one case study in there, I don't want to give too much away because people need to buy the book and, and really there's the questions at the end that we're not even talking about. So after each case study, uh, there are debriefing questions that you're going to talk to in your professional development, which is why I love the book. It, everything's right here for us. So you do uh, talk about one. Uh, there's a couple dynamics. Coach comes in, white coach gets a job over to black coach. But on top of that, there's disparaging remarks about the LGBT community. So first, I guess for me, where I see that coming in my school are a lot of the comments from the kids of, um, you know, you got to say no homo. Because I, after I leave, I'll give you a quick example. I leave every single class saying the same thing to my kids. Love you all. Have a good day. I literally use that phrase. I've talked to them about the various types of love and how, you know, when we hear love automatically goes to romantic love and others, you know, but when I say I love my grandma, I love my dog, we have all these conversations. But uh, the other day I left and the, and the kid goes, yo, you got to say no homo. And I'm like, so first of all, we talked about the various types of love. I go, and then on top of it, you, with that statement, there's a negative association attached with being gay. I go, so why would I have to do that? And you'll hear, oh, you got to say pause. You'll hear that's gay um, in there. Like, so these are all those messages that come up. As a teacher, what do I need to know? How do I become a disruptor uh, of that? And how is that intertwined in the black community? Because I think we don't understand the dynamics and by we, I mean white people who haven't spent enough time doing work. Well, I'll take the first part of that. I just think, you know, how you phrased sort of the question a little bit earlier was talking about it in terms of what's the consequences of teachers ignoring that. And I think the big piece is obviously you're letting students run the class, number one, if you do that, because as you just talked about, you're trying to set a climate where everyone's equal. And when students say something like no homo and it's not addressed by the teacher, now that student and those groups of students are therefore in control. And that's not what we want to create in obviously classroom. So 
one of the things that I, I talk about is verbal pollution, and we have to be careful of that. And one of your other questions um, talks about the N-word, which maybe we'll be able to get into a little bit later. But verbal pollution, as we see, causes bullying. It causes dehumanization. It causes poor classroom climate. It undermines everything that you want to do in that class, because what happens, as we know, is that it might not be in your class that that conversation comes up again. That student could be in history class, and then all of a sudden, we have taken whatever groups of students, whatever perception, and all of a sudden, that pollution has gone outside of the physical education classroom and is seeped into other classes and it is seeped into community environment. And we recognize the fact as well, when we use those different terms, they lead to um, things like eating disorders, they eat, lead to things like low self-esteem and depression. So what do you do as a teacher? And I would probably submit one thing is, first of all, addressing it and explaining it, and then understand telling people the consequences of what that's going to be. And I will stop there. And I will add because, you know, as a teacher, you, you hear these um, comments, you address it immediately. And, and, and an easy way is you don't know who you're offending right now. That's one. Two, um, letting them know that they're, there, you know, there's nothing wrong with same, same love. Um, and it won't be tolerated. This is not that environment. You can also use examples where they may be put down. You know, what if someone said no black people or use the N word um, and a, a battery of things like, how does that make you feel? Well, comments like that makes folks who identify as gay and lesbian harmful, it's harmful language. And so I think, I think once you attach and let them know that it's harmful language and that it's not acceptable, um, I've never had students continue to use negative language um, in front of me um, after I have addressed it head on in front of the in front of their peers. So it's not just a one off. I think there's some conversations you can have one on one where you don't want to, but those types of infractions need to be addressed immediately to let their peers know that it's not acceptable. And I think as well for some classes, some teachers, and then again, we have to kind of be careful about this because you're gonna have to do some research on this. There's nothing saying that your class can't create their own language. And people think about that and they go, well, that's crazy. Like, so if, if people, you, you feel funny about using the word love, then what word is it gonna be? And what word is that class going to use that's going to substitute for the word love? And that sounds absolutely corny. And, you know, when students throw out a word like they may throw out like, uh, I don't know, balloons. And maybe that's like the word to express that people are feeling really happy about a situation. And I love you. Have a great weekend and be safe. Whatever it is is what it is. And again, with the where we're at right now in society, you got to make sure you research even words that students create because sometimes it may mean something else. But students having the opportunity to construct the class is a part of that as well. Because sometimes we as adults will say, well, I love you. Here's what I think it means. But yeah, a student is going to listen to a Kanye West song or whatever artist they're listening to, and they want to be popular. They're not thinking about the destructive characteristics about it. They just want to be hip and cool and say, well, I know that's how you said it, old person, but this is how I want to say it. 
And then the two of y'all are going to have to come together with an agreement saying, well, you know what? Well, let's just work together to create a word that's not my word and not your word, but that's something that's beyond our level of comprehension here. And we spread that among people in our community. Yeah. Oh, and one last thing. Um, sometimes it's deflection. If you look in the literature, um, some of the most or some who appear to be the most anti-gay um, are often gay themselves and they're struggling because they're not in an environment um, that supports who they are. So those are, those are some things to be mindful about as well is that it could just be um, I, all eyes off of who I really am because there, there may potentially be some consequences depending on the um, environment that they're in. That can never happen. Like a lawmaker that would vote against LGBT laws that, and that protect the LGBT community, and it comes out they are LGBT. That that's never happened before. We've never we've never seen that. All right. So again, I wanted to make sure we address uh, sexuality in here uh, because again, it does show up in your book multiple times. Uh, let's finish up with with I think the the hardest subject, and that is the n-word uh there's so much that goes into it there's variations of it there's the n-word pass there's saying it as a term of endearment they're saying it as um a term of hatred uh there's who can say it, who can't is it appropriate at school at all i mean there's so much around this that if and if you're not careful as a teacher you may think you're doing good by stepping in and you actually are doing more harm. So let's first talk about, I guess, tell me what do we need to know? There's just so much. What do I need to know? How do I interrupt? All right, Dr. Blackshear, you want to go first? Because you seem to have a book with a title I can't even say. Talk well, to me. I, I must start first because once I saw the title of that book, which I've read and I have in my literature at home, I'm, I'm curious to see how like Dr. Blackshear's perception on this. But I think one of the things that we need to understand is what you've just said, Justin. I mean, the N-word is a, is a very complex thing to negotiate. I mean, every 10 years or so, the NAACP did this in 2007, I think 2008, they had a funeral for the N-word. And every time that there's a, they had also had one, I think Oprah had one funeral for the N-word for in like the, the mid 90s. And every time they have a funeral for it, people dig it right back up. So there are complexities among this, even in our society. Um, as I tell people that I work with and my students, first of all, we have to recognize it's a slur. It is. Um, we also have to recognize that, as you mentioned, for some people, they feel like it's a term of endearment. There's a hard ER versus the hard A. And again, there are a lot of discussions that can be had on that. I usually tell people that it is a word that is a categorization and is a word that promotes distance. And it doesn't matter how it's used, it's a category in a distance at the same time, which is very, which is why it's so unbelievably complex. Some people can use it and it draws people to them. If it's used in certain connotations, it repels people away and creates different barriers. Um, and before I'll pass it on, hit it back over to that. We deal with this in one of the case studies. In fact, Dr. Blackshear's first case study, we, we just say, we're just gonna go ahead and deal with this. But one of the questions in it for reflection that you've probably already seen deals with Huckleberry Finn. And um, 
the Mark Twain and the fact that Huckleberry Finn, um, and specifically Mark Twain, excuse me, is um, seen as one of the greatest American authors of all time. And people feel a certain type of way about that because of the use of the N-word in that particular book. So it gets people to sort of think about these particular types of questions. So yeah, um, I would just say, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different pieces of that. And I'll, I'll toss it back over and then probably have some other thoughts about that. Brian, you were spot on. I don't have much to add, but from a teaching perspective, um, I, it wasn't allowed in my space. And I, in my first 10 years teaching in the United States, most of those were in predominantly black um, or yeah, predominantly black schools. And so um, ER, a hard ERA, um, it's not acceptable. Um, and I would explain to the students why it wasn't acceptable in my space. Um, and again, I never had an issue. Um, I'm black, so it was, I think it's easier for me to address, but I don't think white teachers should let it go by. Um, and, but you have to give the historical context, even, you know, it's a, it's a time and a place. There is a, there is, you know, I don't even want to use this word because it, it can be, um, there's so many layers of professionalism, but there is professional language um, that is expected for students, faculty, and so forth. And this is for everybody. How we talk at work is often different to how we talk at home or with our friends and peer group. And, and that's just an explanation that you'll have to give to the students. Well, you're in a professional space. Th these are the expectations and we do have rules and this type of language is not acceptable. You can actually head that on with, you know, the rules at the beginning of the um, semester. You know, these words are inappropriate from the, the gay slurs, the um, racial slurs in context, and just that explain that people have a lot of points of view or various perspectives in dealing with, with language, but in this space, it's not acceptable. But there might be teachers where it is, like even, you know, but if it's something I think that strikes emotions or feelings and you're not saying something, then it's something that is not appropriate. It's not, it needs to be said. So that, that's just my policy when I'm teaching those. And I check, I check the students, um, but I wouldn't ignore it. I wouldn't ignore it. Even if the student says, oh, it's a term of endearment. I, I would imagine if you told them, it makes me very uncomfortable when I hear you use those words. And I want you to respect, we have this mutual respect. I think your students would um, agree not to use that word in your space. And so I, and I also think it will give them something to think about when they're in other spaces um, and how those words make certain people uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. It's a word. I, I think, you know, if you're going to be doing any development with this book, again, so we know the first chapter in the book deals with that word. 
And I think it would behoove everyone to understand the different dynamics of that word, but really the history of why that word was created. Because I said before, that word was created in violence and the word was created to characterize and separate people. And if no one's sure of that, I would challenge them to use the word in different spaces and come back to me if they can with some things that may have happened to them as a result of using those words in different spaces. Um, so yeah, that's all I'll, I'll leave with that, with that. Yeah, I do a racial slur. Well, I do a slurs unit, uh, a couple of lessons. And I talk about how uh, for, for black people, there is a racial slur against black people in every culture. That is one of the only groups that, that has that. I don't care, Jewish, I was raised Jewish. There's a word there, right? And we could go on Italian. There's a word there. So again, those are my cultures where I come from. And I know specific words. You all know what I'm talking about. So again, when we talk about these things, and I, I cut up Tennessee Coates' um, thing with it and, and really show that to my class about it and really tell white people like certain things you cannot say. And that's just it. And I know that we want to say everyone should have equal, blah, blah, blah. There, there's a reason why you shouldn't say it, right? And we don't, as white people, have the right to everything. And this is one of those areas where we don't have the right to, to even say it because in my school, it's very mixed, but there's, you hear it. And, and I've had the conversations and I tell people from my community, like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to say or say or not say, I go, but I will tell you at school, this is inappropriate and we're not saying that. And then I tell like, and what, when the white people hear around, what are the mixed messages they're hearing as well? Like, oh, it's a horrible word. You shouldn't say it that we're hearing at school and, and they don't pick up on the nuance of these. Marcella, Steven, anything? I, I never allowed that word in, in my space. Um, sometimes, you know, even in my earlier, earlier career, it was difficult because sometimes I didn't have the classroom management and it was more difficult as a white woman saying, you can't say that. Um, but um, no, it's not acceptable in school spaces. And, and I, I tell them that you really shouldn't be using it even outside just because of the history. But, you know, the, the time I have with my students is really limited because with phys ed, even though we're the only um, subject mandated with 150 minutes a week, that doesn't exist. And unfortunately, I've never been able to go as deep with it as I'd wanted to. And I connect, I try to bring up Emmett Till as many times as I can for the kids. And I always bring that up, how uh, the start of the civil rights and try to attach the word to what happened to him as well. So they kind of understand, like, this is the history that we're bringing in with that. Stephen, anything? I think everybody kind of covered it. Um, I look forward to using this book for future professional developments. Um, because I, I guess I can say it now because it's official, but I'm moving into a new role that will essentially allow me to support other health and physical educators, just be better. So hopefully I'll be able to infuse this into our PD at the beginning of the year to kind of start those conversations to make more change. Um, I look forward to officially reading the entire book. I had the Kindle edition, I'm just waiting on the actual book to arrive, so. I can read on the computer, but it's just not the same. 
Thank you, Stephen. I understand. <coughs> and there's just something about holding the book. <laughs> it's a whole new experience. It yes, and and, and and we want to tell people both of us will be at Shape New Orleans for all the listeners. So if you want to have an opportunity to hold physically hold the book with one of us, um, we will be there. We'll, we'll be talking about a, a, a few of these issues as interspersed in with some of the other commentary. So. All right, so we'll wrap it up. I'll give you Dr. Cole, Dr. Blackshear, the last, I always give you all a couple minutes to talk about anything you want. I do want to put these two quotes out there uh, because I feel like in Fizet and Health, this will help us. So first, James Baldwin, I'm going to use his words. Uh, he says, to be a Negro in this country and be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all the time, right? So he says that. And I say that to go with this quote. And once I heard this, I wanted this in my classroom. It says, black joy is an act of resistance. <laughs> so if we can understand how difficult it is to be black in America, and then we can understand how when our black students are having joy in our classrooms, I feel like that could be a great jumping off point for us. You don't have to know the history of everything. You don't have to be the greatest teacher. You can look at your class and go, are my black students showing joy? How am I creating conditions for them to show joy? Like I talked about earlier, when they're having joy, you know who else is having joy? Every single other person in your class. So anyway, now who wants to go over it? Let's go Dr. Colt, final words, anything you want. You can talk about the tournament coming up, Shape Nola, anything. That's that. I mean, you know, those two quotes back to back are, are ones that I would use in any literature, any paper coming up, because I think they that that's it. We're you're at some points enraged and some points trying to figure out a way during the course of a day or course of society where to find the joy. And I think that's a very important point when we think about this book in relative to black black youth and relative to how you should be teaching to the perspectives and thinking about black youth. And I also wanna just mention sort of before I sort of end here, you know, the book is not just, I mean, we wrote it and obviously we have some perspectives, but there are pieces in the book when you look at the resources as well, that will take you to where we found or discuss some of these pieces, which I think, you know, that needs to be said. Um, and also who we cited. So we've referenced them as well. So there's a lot there. So for an educator that's looking to uncover more information about how they can successively teach to the, to the um, fortunes of black youth, you've got references there. You'll be able to find it, be able to kind of sit with it a little bit. We recognize sometimes in professional development, we tend to prioritize other forms of education, but this is PE. And, uh, I'll just leave with the listeners. If anyone has an opportunity to sort of reach out and ask some questions, please feel free. Um, you can find me on social media, culture, at Culture in Motion with Twitter or my website, which is named the exact same thing. So that's what I've got, Dr. Blackshear. Justin, good question about the teacher asking themselves, are, they, are their students um, experiencing or demonstrating Black joy. And Brian, you know, you and I just recently talked about this, how um, Black joy is a new term for non-Black folks, um, for many that um, he was sharing how a group 
of folks he was working with were, they didn't have the knowledge of what black joy was. And unfortunately we see it time and time again in physical education spaces, teaching spaces, schools, where there appears to be an intentional effort to destroy black joy. Um, the policing, the compliance, the arbitrary rules. And for example, you know, how black people, you know, our, our, our hairstyles. I mean, why do we have a crown act? So there are so many things that stifle um, or prevent or aim to prevent black joy and black students as, them, as their authentic selves because they're giving message, receiving messages that who they are, what they do, how they move, what they believe um, is insufficient, is inadequate, is inferior. And so you do have the two um, extremes, rage, um, and there's a lot of black joy and some, a lot of that black joy goes unnoticed um, because it is perceived as something else um, in schools, the black joy. And Justin, you mentioned love early and um, Carla Lugetti has a concept called pedagogy of love. I'm not sure if you're familiar. And which reminds me of when I was leaving my, I taught 10 years in the United States and then seven overseas. And the, the last year I was, I was leaving the high school where I was teaching. And I remember a student, black student said, you'll never leave us, you love us too much. And so circling back to asking your students, how do you make them feel? What are you doing to support their um, concepts and needs in health and physical education, I think are, are front and center to foster the black joy. And I, I do agree, yeah, I'm biased, but we wrote this book for a reason um, to help educators serve black children well. Um, but Brian and I will be hosting workshops and facilitating um, professional development. Stephen, we're happy to come to Philly and um, help guide your teachers. Um, we're, we're not afraid to have the courageous conversations um, and provide actionable, measurable steps um, that move beyond just ticking a box. And so as Brian, he gave a shout, you can find me at my website as well, tarablackshare.com. You can Google Towson University and find me there as well. And we appreciate you for listening. We hope you buy the book and we're looking forward to more critical race conversations. Mm. And we didn't even get into colorism, which is in the book. We didn't talk about transgender people, which are in the book. There's so much more in the book. Like I had questions. This could go on for five hours. You know, I knew it can't. So again, we literally just delved a little bit into the book. I would highly, highly, highly recommend you get this book even if you just read it yourself, but specifically get it and then go to school and say, hey, I have this book. Let's do some professional learning. We know that health and phys ed is underrepresented in professional development at our schools. 
If you could afford to get Dr. Cobb and Dr. Blackshear, hit them up, bring them in. If you can't, buy the books, do your studies on your own, tell them, hey, I want to control my learning. This is an area of weakness. Uh, there's a great resource out there. Steven, Marcella, anything? Uh, Dr. Blackshear, you got something to say? I want to say one more thing. This book is applicable to all education disciplines, not just physical education or health and physical education. These experiences are occurring across um, every classroom, every curriculum um, in, in multiple environments. So I encourage all educators, teacher educators, pre-service teachers to, if you want to be um, more effective and supportive or creating a supportive environment, the book will benefit those who are outside of physical education as well. Just, yeah, that's what I was, where I was going, Dr. Blackshear, that I don't think this book is just for pre-service teachers. Um, I will be taking this book to every board of ed meeting I go to. I go to board of ed meetings in multiple districts. I travel around the state. Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to find out when the next Montclair Board of Ed meeting is. I will be bringing it there because they definitely need it. Um, my, all my children have been traumatized in Montclair public schools and they're all different. They have different personalities. One thing they have in common is some melanin in their skin and some black features. Um, so I will be presenting at one of their board of ed meetings and asking them to purchase the um, book and, and make it part of their PD for their phys ed teachers. I mean, I'll start with phys ed teachers, but I'll, I'll, I'll let them know that, you know, it's applicable to their, their whole staff. Um, I'm just really appreciative of this book. I'm just so glad to be in the same space with you all and um, learn from you. And um, the book just means a lot to me. So thank you. Thank you, Marcella. I'm curious, how did you find out about the book? Twitter. <laughs> Go Twitter. Yeah, thank you for those thoughts. It is much appreciated. And, and we appreciate being here in this space with all of you. Great. Yeah, it's, uh, once again, just want to share my appreciation for you taking the time, the energy to develop a book and come on here today because I can imagine that takes a lot to write an entire book and then go around speaking about it and doing this for uh, the field is definitely beneficial for all. So thank you once again, and hopefully we'll be able to make something work out for the future. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, you can stop the